0: Today's scripture reading is from Romans 12 8, 12 through 17. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will leave. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is the word of the Lord. Praise Praise be to Christ. So we're in our second of uh, what will be five messages in a series that we are calling the greatest chapter ever written. We're not the first to call Romans 8 the greatest chapter ever written. There have been many others, Uh, but uh, today's focus is uh, a statement that Paul makes about those who identify with Christ and, and have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, and that is that they are, we are heirs of everything. There is an immense inheritance that is there for us, not only in the future, but also present right now that we can lay hold of. Um, first, I want to get the potentially awkward part out of the way, and that is a word that's used in verse 14 where it says that all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. This is not a gender-exclusive way of speaking about things. Christianity is not a men's club. This is uh, the use of metaphor to help us see one of the many dimensions of how God wishes to relate to His children. So, just as much as women and girls are included in the designation sons of God, so men and boys are included when the Bible talks about us being part of the bride of Christ. And so, with respect to God as Father, uh, J.I. Packer wrote these words, "'If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his Father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his whole outlook on life, he does not understand Christianity very well.'" And so, what I want to do is unpack a little bit of the immense riches that are in front of us about what it means to be adopted by God, part of the family of God. And uh, I'm going to talk about it in terms of our inheritance, uh, you know, kind of booting off of this word heirs that Paul uses, and that is that we are heirs of God's tenderness as His children. We're heirs of His discipline. We're heirs of His love, and then we are heirs of His blended family. So, first off, heirs of God's tenderness. Verse 15, Paul writes, You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And so, this word translated father is the Greek word, and the word translated Abba is an Aramaic word, Abba. So uh, the second or, or the first one, uh, the Abba part, is more transliterated rather than translated. But what this word is and the significance that this word Abba carries is that it is always, in every instance, an intimate address. It assumes affection, it, it assumes access, it, it assumes protection. It it, it assumes that there is a father who is for you. This was the cry of small children in that culture, uh, equivalent to our words, papa, or daddy, or whatever term of endearment boys and girls use toward loving fathers. And so, I think it's important to provide a little bit of contextual reality here, to first-century Jewish ears, to people who were well-versed in the Hebrew Scriptures, which which gave us the Old Testament in particular, to first-century Jewish ears, using the, the name Abba, whether talking about God or directly to Him, would have been received as irreverent and even blasphemous. No ancient Jew would dare to address God with such an intimate, tender address. You may know this if you're, if you're a Bible scholar or if you've, you've studied sort of Jewish culture. You may know this already, that when there was a public reading of the Old Testament, and this is still the case in, in many uh, synagogues and temples today, when there was a public reading, it was most often the case that they would replace the name Yahweh, uh, which is the the most frequently used designation for God in the Old Testament, it's our covenant-keeping God, Yahweh, they would replace that word in the public reading with Adonai. And when scribes were were copying the Scriptures down, they had scribes then, they didn't have PDF technology, they didn't have… you know, all the, you know, didn't have series, so they couldn't dictate it to an iPhone. If you wanted to co- a copy of something, you, you had to write it down or hire somebody to write it down. And there were professional scribes who were hired to protect the integrity of what was written in there by copying it verbatim except in one point. Wherever the Old Testament mentions Yahweh, they subtracted from their writing a couple of letters because they did not feel that their hands were worthy to write the full name they weren't human lips weren't worthy to speak the name human hands weren't worthy to write it and we 've got to pause just for a second and ask ourselves if, if, if perhaps some of this reverence needs to be recovered in our own concept of God in, in, in a time and in, in a space and in a world in which we we love to hear about you know God as a lamb but, but but we sort of really want to resist the notion of God as a lion, and here you've got God as a consuming fire who is understood by the Jewish community, at least, as being too transcendent and holy to just presume to speak His name and to presume to write His name down. If you've read the book of Judges, you may remember a story of a man named Manoah and his wife, and they were both given a glimpse of the glory of God, and impulsively and immediately Manoah turns over to his wife and says, I guess we need to prepare to die because we've seen the Lord. Because the, 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 the only concept that they had of a human being laying eyes on the glory of God was what happened every year on Yom Kippur. Uh, or the Day of Atonement. This is why we need to read Leviticus, so that we can understand. Leviticus is just as valuable as the Book of John, folks. Read Leviticus, so you can understand the context behind Yom Kippur. This was the one day a year where the the uh, the priest, the high priest, would 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 go into the this little room called the Holy of Holies. Nobody else would go in there. He would go in there one day a year to offer sacrifices for the sins of the people. And what they did was they tied a rope around the priest's waste in case He were struck dead in the presence of this holy God who is a consuming fire, so they could pull Him out and not have to go in and be destroyed themselves. And so, that's the context in which this whole bit is written. And, and, and so, now you have Paul talking about this person called the Holy Spirit who embodies you as, as part of what it means to live in Christ, walk in Christ, to be with Christ, you're now embodied. You are now filled with the Holy Spirit of God who compels you now to refer to the consuming fire as Papa. The fire is now your daddy. And when you walk toward the fire and into the fire, you'll not get burned. And so he uses the words in verse 15, adoption as sons, and it's this adoption, it's this status, it's the reality that God has put His name on you irrevocably now, that you now have every right to refer to Him as Abba, Father. In fact, when you pray to Him, Jesus says, pray to Him, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name, and so on. And then Paul goes on to talk about how the Holy Spirit bears witness to our own hearts, that we are daughters and sons of God. How can this be true? How can we transition from consuming fire to Papa? How can the two go together? It's all tied up in these two words, with Christ. Verse 17, you are now with Christ. You are fellow heirs with Christ. This means a whole lot. But the the, the broad headings are these. His life is now our life, the moment that you trust in Christ, the moment that, that your heart is anchored into His finished work on your behalf by living the life that you should have lived but didn't because you couldn't, and by dying the death that, that, that you deserve to die but you don't have to because He did it in your, in, in, in your account and on your behalf. His life is now our life, which means that all of His perfection, all of His law-keeping, all of the things that He did to deserve To refer to the consuming fire as Papa, is credited to you and you're covered with it. The Bible talks about this being clothed, us being clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ so that when God looks at us, He sees the perfection and beauty of Christ. He he proclaims over us the same benediction, the same good word that He proclaimed over Jesus at Jesus' baptism. This is my beloved Son. This is my beloved daughter. With Him, with her, I am well pleased all the time because you're covered with Him. His life is your life. His death is also your death. He took the penalty. He bore the freight of of punishment that our sins deserve on the cross. That's why the cross had to happen, atonement. One man dying for the many that they may be set free. This is why Romans 8, which I'll get back to in a moment, begins no, con- no condemnation. And then it goes on to talk about no separation. Can't wait to preach that one. It's toward the end. There's nothing in all creation that will ever be able to separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. And then there's this little sentence tucked in there, having suffered with Jesus, we will now be glorified or we will soon be glorified with Him. This is a reference to resurrection. Because Christ has come up from the dead, so will everybody whose life is hidden in Him and with Him through faith. That means, and I say this all the time because I'm a chronic amnesiac about it and I suspect that many of you are too, I say this all the time, your long-term worst-case scenario, whatever you're going through right now, however difficult things are for you right now, your long-term worst-case scenario in Christ and with Christ is resurrection and everlasting life. 150 years from now, that's as bad as it's going to get for you. It's as bad as it's going to get. And so, His tenderness is our starting point. Abba is our starting point, which means, do you fear God? If the answer to that question is yes, you never again have to be afraid of anything, including God. His tenderness that's the environment that enables us to hear the next part, heirs of His discipline. See, because if we look at verse 13, we see that our Father's vision for us is to help us put to death the deeds of the body so that we will live, or in other words, to, to put to death those, those viral and bacterial aspects of our foolishness that make us more sick the more we lean into them, the more we allow them to fester in our systems. This is sort of a representation of of all forms of sin, all forms of turning the other direction when God says, go over here. You've got to put to death the deeds of the body so that you will live, and when you don't, guess what? All sons of God are going to be led by the Spirit so that you do. The Spirit, by the way, comes in like a gentle breeze sometimes for comfort, but He also comes in like a tornado if He needs to, in order to dismantle and disrupt and explode so as to rebuild into something beautiful and indestructible. He's committed to that for us because He knows us better than we know ourselves. He loves us better than we love ourselves. And so, He is zealous about confronting us when foolishness takes over. So there's this, um, there's this article that, I <clears throat> that came across my, uh, my screen in the last couple of weeks, and it's about a parenting philosophy, It's sort of a critique of a parenting philosophy that's, that's essentially driven uh, the vast majority of, of contemporary American parenting for the past 30, 40 years or so. And it's a parenting philosophy uh, uh, written about by a famous man named Dr. Spock, not the one from Star Trek but a different Dr. Spock. And Dr. Spock's philosophy in a nutshell was this. No longer should children follow the lead of their parents. Rather, parents should follow the lead of their children. Rather than a parent-centered home, go for the child-centered home, built on affirmation, built on you can do no wrong ever, built on self-esteem, built on the centrality of the child and built around the centrality of the child. So here's, here's part of what that critique article said. The, the title of the article is, How Dr. Spock is Destroying America. Here, here Show my hand where this is going. So, so here's an excerpt. Instead of stressing the importance of teaching self-denial and respect for authority, Spock emphasized accommodating children's feelings and catering to their preferences. No longer did children learn that they could endure Brussels sprouts. By the way, this was before Brussels sprouts were cool. (laughs) They could endure Brussels sprouts and suffer through daily chores. Using Spock's approach, parents began to feed self-indulgence instead of instilling self-control. Homes were becoming less parent-directed and more child-centered. As parents elevated children's freedom of expression and natural cravings, Children became more outspoken, more defiant, more demanding of gratification. In fact, they came to view gratification as a right. This is the polar opposite of the way that God intends to father us. God is not a softy in his parenting style, he's not a Spockite or whatever you call it. Because in the heart of God is the notion that to spoil is to destroy. To feed entitlement is to create and cultivate a beast. He wants to get the unhealth out of us so that we can live. So, what, what's a modern analogy to this? But we, got a, we got a whole truckload or more of parents of young children in our community, both at Central and in town. So if you're a parent of a young child, you, you know a little bit about that thing they call the well child visit to the doctor. That's when you take your healthy child to the doctor so the doctor can stick a needle and inject fluid into them. Uh, and, and the reason is to vaccinate them and to protect them from potential bacteria and, and viral infections that could come into their systems and destroy them. And so, here's how the well-child visits worked for us as parents with our two daughters. Patty and I decided to do this together. Teamwork, right? Teamwork makes the dream work. And, and so, we bring our daughters to the doctor, and Patty was always given a role either by the doctor or the nurse that's giving the shot. Your role is to comfort. Your role is to ensure the child that everything's going to be okay. Your role is to whisper sweet nothings in their ear, and, and you, Dad your role is to hold the child down. <laughs> your role is discipline. Good cop, bad cop. You're the bad cop. And every time, you know, the, the, the girls, you, nobody wants, you give the girls a vote, you give kids a vote, it's always going to be no. Let me go. I hate needles. Get that needle away from me, right? And I, I remember both of our daughters looking at me as I'm holding them down with, with this tender, loving look on my face And and the look on their face in return was, you are betraying me. I thought we were friends. I thought we were on the same side. And then, boom, ow! And then they look at me, wah! You know, and and it just just went on and on and on. In their minds, this is a cosmic betrayal. Their Abba is now a consuming fire in their eyes. But the consuming fire is trying to be an Abba in order to burn out Every bit of, of, of that which is unhealthy and unholy in them. Every bit of, of, of everything that will suck life out of them instead of promote and enhance and prolong life for them. You know, as John Owen, the great Puritan, in his book, The Mortification of Sin says Be killing sin always, or sin will always be killing you. Have you ever felt held down or needled by your Father in heaven, whether through some set of circumstances that you didn't invite into your life and it just brought all kinds of disruption and maybe even destruction to to your equilibrium? Or maybe there is a law or a path that He's saying, you've got to walk this path in order to experience life, and everything in you rejects it and says, I'm going this way. Sometimes, foolish hearts need a tough father to hold us down and to prick us, not because He's against us, but because He's for us, not because He wants to take life from us, but because He wants to protect life for us. Heirs of His tenderness, heirs of His discipline, heirs of His love, heirs of His affection, heirs of His passionate gestures that He's always sending our ways, or our way, where it says, we cry, Abba, Father, the the Greek word here is the word kratso, which means a bold cry. There's nothing passive about it. There's nothing boring about it. There's nothing um, stale about it or anemic about it. It it means enthralled intimacy. John Stott described the verb this way. The Greek word for we cry, kratzo, is such a strong verb that it expresses a loud, spontaneous, emotional ejaculation. Yes, I just said that in church, because there's no better word to describe this experience that Paul is describing for us, his point being that faith, true faith in Jesus Christ Filled by the Spirit is supposed to lead to something gut level, something visceral, something felt, something a lot like fire. The stuff of love songs shows up along the way. It's not a constant state, but it, it shows up along the way here and there to remind you that you are loved and protected and kept. The enemy to this kind of access, and this kind of bold cry to the Father's love is what you could call nominal Christianity, cultural Christianity, anemic religion. It's more cultural than personal, it's more peripheral than core, it's more small than glorious, it's more of a tack-on to the American dream than it is surrender to a cosmic king who rules over every square inch and every people, every person, place, and thing. It's more a religion of convenience than it is one that disorients you so as to reorient you to the healthy path. Nominal, anemic, cultural Christianity where God is… He's there in the picture, but He's on the outskirts of the picture. He's more like kind of somewhere near the frame. Never any fire, never any electricity. Never any romance. Sunday is always the assumed travel day because, hey, do a little. we can do without God. Why? Because you, you know, come here for God. You come here for other things. You come here for community. You come here to be inspired by music. You come here to be part of a cause if you're a nominal Christian, if you're a cultural Christian. But one of the last things on your mind when you show up is God. You've forgotten that everything minus Jesus is nothing. And Jesus, Jesus minus everything or is, or, 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 or I'm sorry, the other one. Jesus is everything, that's the point. Shoot, I killed it the first service and it in town. Everything minus Jesus is nothing. Jesus plus nothing is everything. The poet Wilbur Rees captured it this way. I can see myself in this, by the way. I'm not preaching down at you, I'm, I'm preaching at my own heart. I would like three dollars' worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep but just enough of him to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of him to make me love a black man or to pick beets with an immigrant. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack, please. I would like to buy $3 worth of God. Cultural Christianity, where God is just a means to other things that we are really interested in, but when it comes to the undistracted subject of God, we're bored as hell. Take Him or leave Him. Oh, man, restaurants are going to be crowding pretty soon. Lord's Supper again. Why, why do we have to do this every week? Take so much time. Again, this is your pastor's heart. I look at Paul in Romans 7 and Romans 8, and I have to ask myself, am I there with him? Where, where in Romans 7, he's, he's contemplating his own secret sin of coveting, and he's nauseated, like viscerally nauseated, where I'm just like, oh, I covet, Jesus will take care of that. One of these days, if not now, some other time, Paul is nauseated. He's like, get this virus out of me, get this bacteria out of me, because I'm not living as long as I'm coveting. I'm not living as long as I'm going against the Tenth Commandment, being dissatisfied with God alone. He says, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? And then he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, and then we get Romans 8. Therefore, based on Romans 7, there's now no condemnation in Christ. He's your Abba, not just a consuming fire. He's given you a glorious future. That's next week. Nothing in all creation can separate you from His love. See, Paul is kindling the romance here. It's always there. He's just forgotten about it. It's never left him. He's just gotten a case of amnesia, and he's rekindling his own memory with Romans 8, the greatest chapter ever written. Paul wants a faith that moves him, that gets in his face, that pushes back on him, that wounds him in order that he might be healed. now I'm going to hurt you. Here's the last one. Bonus point this week. Number four. Heirs of his blended family. All shapes, sizes, cultures, and colors. That's the vision. Revelation 7. Every nation, every tribe, every tongue gathered around the throne of Christ forever. That's the future. But Paul is suggesting that the time to embrace it is now. And if you're saying to yourself, well, that's a heaven thing, then stop praying the Lord's Prayer. At least stop praying this part of it. Stop praying, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Just quit it because you're praying like a hypocrite. If you don't mean it, don't pray it. Because that prayer says, bring the future down now, Lord, Bring it down now and show me my role in that picture. Do you you understand, do we understand how radical it is for Paul to pair Abba and Father together? Abba is Aramaic Jewish-speaking language. Father, or pater, is Greek-speaking language. Talk about social divides. And then Paul, who's grown up as a Jew all of his life, who was trained in the schools that that, that produced rabbis who would pray every day, thank you, God, that I'm not a Gentile. This same man starts virtually every letter, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you, that's the standard Gentile salutation in a letter written by a Gentile to a gentile peace to you standard jewish salutation written by a jew sent to a jew grace and peace jew and gentile black and white blue state and red state and so on space for the other don't dare claim to live on the narrow path if you've got a narrow embrace you've got a narrow mind and a narrow heart toward your fellow human beings who bear the image of God and who carry the divine be- imprint. If you have a narrow heart, don't dare claim to follow the narrow path because that path is right behind a first-century dark-skinned Middle Eastern Jew who spent most of his life poor, who was a refugee as a child from the Middle East. Your hope, you're claiming, by claiming to be on the narrow path of Jesus, that you're on the same path and your arms need to go like this, not like that. It's not just a heaven thing. This is a now thing, and it's messy and it's awkward and it's freaking hard. Just ask the leaders in our CPC women community who are pressing into these things. It's hard, complicated, worth it. And here we got Paul again writing Romans. Do you know what that means? Brown-skinned dude writing to a bunch of white people. In verse 12, calling them brothers, using throughout the language of we and us. Verse 15, we cry, Abba, Father. We cry, Jewish God, Gentile God, same God. We cry. Along the way, somewhere along the way, Paul had opened himself to his Abba, who is also a consuming fire, to disturb his sensibilities to the core. How, Paul might be thinking, can I possibly presume to say that I love God and, and simultaneously continue to curse people made in His image? Charlottesville, Virginia. Yesterday, white supremacists from all over the place descend on Charlottesville, Virginia, a strategic hub for racial reconciliation and justice, right outside of our nation's capital, descended with hiles and hatred, some doing so in the name of Christ. Does it mystify you that that over the course of history, tens and tens of thousands of people in the name of Christ have perpetrated hatred for the Jews when Christ himself was Jewish? Or per- perpetrated hatred for those with dark skin when Christ himself was brown? You know, when I look at Charlottesville, I'll tell you where my heart goes, that's extremism, that really doesn't have anything to do with me, that's extremism. Culturally regressive, you know, backwoods stuff. is it? Is it? Or is there a subtle supremacy that also resides in the heart of Scott Sauls? Am I disturbed at all when the children's Bibles that I put in front of my children portray almost all of them a Caucasian Jesus with Caucasian disciples? Does that bother me at all? Does it bother me at all that even though over 50% of children in the United States under the age of five, un, over 50% of them are people of color. And yet, when I turn on the television and watch movies and shows, it is disproportionately not in that trajectory. What is that saying to the children in our land? What's that saying? To me, am I compelled to correct this revisionist stuff with my own kids when it's in front of me? The white, blue-eyed Jesus, and I'm not saying that there was ill will or some covert agenda behind that. It's just we're we're frog in the kettle, and we get so accustomed to the environment and, and, you know, that, that, that we don't even think anymore. Is this true? Is this real? Is this a right representation? So, before I call it extremist, I've got to ask myself, is there a subtle supremacy in my own heart? As a pastor, will I have courage to name it, to own my own apathy, to own my own bias, to own the fact that usually I don't care that it takes a person of color about three times the muscle, three times the work, just to get an interview for an executive role? Do I care? Do I care that all over the beloved city that that I adore, Nashville, where I live, that I call home, where I plan to be buried, God willing, one day, hopefully not soon, but there are walls of rocks stacked all over the place, relics of slavery everywhere, and I just pass by, oh, how pretty. How pretty is that? How lovely an arrangement of rocks to accent those beautiful trees and hills behind them, and I don't even think about the history behind those things. Does it bother me at all that the neighborhood in which I live used to be a plantation? Does it bother me that there is a cemetery with zero names and zero epitaphs, tens and tens of black men, women, and children buried at the entrance of my neighborhood, upon whose back that plantation was once built because it was the role of black people to serve and support and sweat, and it was the role of white people to be comfortable and in charge and important. Does that bother me at all? And if it doesn't bother me, can I possibly be a Christian? Can I possibly have the Holy Spirit of our Abba residing in me? This is not a white guilt thing, by the way. I don't feel the least bit guilty for feeling white or for for being white. I was born that way. I'm a glorious image-bearer of God just like everybody else. But where the conviction resides is that while I don't feel guilty for being white, sometimes I feel supreme because of the color of my skin. And I need God to prick me and hold me down and to remove the scales of blindness from my own eyes because the wrong needs to seem oft so strong." You sang it, this is my Father's world, it's our Father's world, though the wrong seems off so strong. Does this wrong seem so strong? Oh, news cycle stuff. I am deeply convicted. I think I'm being thoroughly biblical. I dare you to challenge anything that I'm teaching right now, because whatever offense you're taking, oh, this social gospel? No, it's not. There is no such thing as a real vertical faith in God without horizontal love for your neighbor. It doesn't exist. You're fooling yourself. There are massive social implications to dividing walls between heaven and earth being brought down through the cross of Jesus Christ, reconciling us to Him, and the implications for our vertical relating to one another. I'm going to ask for an image to be placed uh, up on the screen for us. This was a picture taken yesterday in Charlottesville. This is a black officer providing a protective barrier for supremacists who wish him harm. Does that remind you of anything? Of a dark skinned man standing alone in a crowd. Providing a protective barrier for those who wish him harm. One that might pray something like this, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. And so after preaching so fiercely on this, I have to look at the people standing behind this man as well. How dare I start shaming anybody in this picture? I have to look at that picture And to say, I am those men standing behind that man, and I always have been, and I always will be. I always will be the one who wished my protector harm, and he protected me anyway. I am motivated to move to the Lord's Supper in light of these truths around the family table of God. And I hope you are too. I hope you are severely convicted. And I hope to see you again sometime. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not trying to drive you out of the scriptures towards some social gospel, friends. I'm trying to drive you into the scriptures to see them fully. Because there is no such thing as a vertical relationship with God, as me and Jesus without me and you, and us and them becoming in us under Christ thanks be to god let's pray father in heaven make it real i hate playing church playing church just kills my soul it just sucks the life out of me nominal christianity bored worship anemic religion. It destroys me, Lord. So, so, give me some of this fire that You gave to the Apostle Paul, heirs of his tenderness, of his discipline, of his love, and of his blended family. Thank You, Jesus, my dark-skinned Savior, that you remembered me in the Great Commission when you said, go to the ends of the earth, preaching the gospel in my name. Thank you that you thought of us the ends of the earth so that we who were your them could become part of your us. Amen.